So we're in this series called Unveiled. We're looking at the book of Revelation. And we've been in it now for, I think this is our fourth week. And the main thing I want to communicate, this word revelation, in the Greek it's apocalypsis, which we get apocalypse, and you always think drama and the end of the world. But it literally just means to reveal or to unveil. That the curtain is pulled back. That the Apostle John is in the island of Patmos. He's an old man. He's about 90 years old. He's been serving Jesus all his life. But because he can't stop talking about Jesus, he's been exiled to this little rocky island in the middle of nowhere. And he is worshipping in the Lord's Day just as we have done. And he has this encounter with the risen, living Jesus. And that's our prayer when we gather here on a Sunday. That we won't just sing songs. That we won't just have nice community and a good cup of tea or coffee afterwards but that we will encounter Jesus that Jesus will speak to us that we will encounter him and and and, and it says he was in the spirit in the Lord's day and he and he encounters Jesus he has this radical encounter and he has this this vision it's revelation by the way not revelations just because people always say the book of revelations it was one revelation with a series of visions uh, just uh, just so i don't get annoyed um we're studying revelations no we're not it's revelation look at your bible um but anyway and, and the key thing i've tried to say is this the first five words yeah are this the revelation of jesus christ this book is not about the antichrist it's about jesus christ this book is not about the end of the world so much or the beast or the 666 or the Armageddon or all of that as it is about Jesus Christ. And we need to keep that central as we study this book, otherwise you will get weird. You will get so caught up with the symbols and imagery and you'll end up moving, buying a cottage in the Moor Mountain, storing canned food and water and waiting for Armageddon. Okay, because I've been watching, do you ever watch any of those programs that were in America that do that? And they've got these basements full of canned food. And, and, and that's kind of because they're worried about the, the end of the world and Armageddon. I don't know where you would do that here. Um, but, you know, we need to keep Jesus at the center, otherwise you go off Weird. We will look at all those other things like Armageddon and the end of the world and all of that stuff. We will do that as we get along, especially into the later chapters where it gets really hard to preach. I promise you, I'm, I'm kind of dreading it, but I'm looking forward to it at the same time. But, but we get this curtain pulled back in Revelation because we live in a world which is tangible, physical, and visible. I can see you all right now. I could touch you all right now if I wanted to. I don't, but, but I could because you're physical, visible beings. But there is also an invisible spiritual world around us right now. We can't see it. Just like we can't see the mobile phone waves around us. Just like we can't see radio waves around us or TV waves around us. There is an invisible spiritual world around us. In fact, it was first. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that's physical and visible came out of that which was invisible. Uh, And so... We never really get the glimpse. Uh, you mentioned that we're, we're open my eyes and he sees the chariots. He gets that glimpse uh, in the Old Testament. And John here gets a glimpse, the revelation, the unveiling. It's, the curtain is pulled back and he gets this, this vision into the unseen world. And the primary thing he sees is this, that though the world might look like it's chaos, chaotic and out of control, it may look like one big mess 
and your life may look like one big mess, like things are falling apart, Jesus is still on the throne. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's the ruler of all history. He's the ruler of eternity. And he takes your little story and makes it part of his big story. And he turns our glory into glory. That's the message of Revelation. That no matter what is happening to you right now, and I know in every person's life there will be stuff that you would like to change right now. There's health situations, there's relational situations, there's um, maybe job situations that, that bring us down, that discourage us, and that's human and that's natural, but we need to lift our eyes up and realize that God is on the throne, he rules and reigns, he's in charge of history, and he's walking among his people. That's what we see, he's walking among the lampstands, which is his church, he knows his church. And so that's what we see in the book of Revelation. And as we get to chapters 2 and 3, then we get letters to his bride bex and i celebrated well we didn't really celebrate because we didn't really celebrate wedding anniversaries because every day is a wedding anniversary in our house i know i know i know but we celebrated our ninth wedding anniversary recently and they said it wouldn't last and uh, uh, and most of you, if, if you've been around here for a while, will know we weren't going out for very long before we, we got engaged. Um, four weeks, and, or four, not four weeks, <laughs> four months and two days. And uh, I remember the day after we got engaged, mom and dad asked what Becky's surname was. Because um, they, they didn't know. Um, they'd met her a few times. And, uh, and, 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 but we, we got engaged quickly. But because of that... Before we had started going out, Bex had booked a, a three-week trip to Australia. Her brother lives in Australia. He's a doctor out there. And uh, she had booked a three-week trip before we had started dating. And so once we started dating, this trip for three weeks was coming up in, I think it was November. And we were kind of dreading it, to be honest, because when you have just fallen in love, you want to spend every minute with the person that you're in love with and we knew we were going to be apart for three weeks and in the end she couldn't handle three weeks away from this um so she so changed it at great expense to two weeks just saying truth um and uh, she changed it to two weeks which was long enough um but here's what she did before she went away she gave me this little parcel and in it were 14 envelopes each with a number on the front and it was 14 letters to me well letters is a strong word um it was 14 lines, I guess, and each one of them had a number that had opened each day. Of course, I never sneaked ahead and picked to the days ahead. Um, and in every one of them was one thing that she loved about me. <laughs> and I mean, it was lovely. The first three or four were good, and then I felt like she was running out of things to say, you know? <laughs> like when day five, you've got your own teeth. Um, <laughs> you know? You've got your own hair, day six. Um, you know, uh, yeah. I just, you know, I, I like your your tan shoes, day seven. I mean, you're starting to stretch things a bit, but actually it was lovely. And in her absence, while I wasn't physically able to see her, I was able to hear what she thought of me. And that's something a little bit like what Jesus does here in Revelation 2 and 3. He's gone back to the Father, but he is writing love letters to his church. He's writing letters to his people. He's writing letters to his bride. Because in Revelation 2 and 3, we have this series of seven letters written to seven named churches. They're letters from Jesus, received by the apostle John from an angel, and then he passes them on to churches. These were seven real churches in Asia Minor. 
And they kind of do an arc. If you can see, the, the, literally, you started on the right there in Ephesus, and he worked his way around. And But the, let, the number seven, you'll see seven come up in Revelation. Numbers are really important in Revelation. And while we don't want to freak out about numbers, they are super important. And seven is completeness. In other words, it's, he picked seven churches, but it was the complete church, is what he's saying. It was the complete church throughout history. In the first century and in the 21st century, these letters are relevant. And we're going to see that, that it was for all churches in all times and all places. And in the book of Revelation, we get three predominant images of Jesus. These are the three images of Jesus we have in the book of Revelation. Glorious King. Righteous judge, and the third one is devoted bridegroom, who's passionate about his bride. Glorious king, righteous judge, and devoted bridegroom. And who's the bride of Christ? Well, it's us, the church. It's you, it's me. And as a man, I have to admit, I feel a little bit uncomfortable being called a bride. I do, honestly. You know, but the Bible also says that we are all sons of God. So women, if you can be sons of God, I can handle being the bride for now. Okay? Because it's, it's, it's a term which is trying to express, like when you're called sons of God because the sons got the inheritance. It's saying you're all sons, whether you're male or female, because you all get the inheritance. It's not telling us that you all are literally sons. It's saying that you are all equal in God's sight to receive a full inheritance, whether you're male or female. That's what that And here it's trying to say that we are beloved by the bridegroom. Whether you're male or female, you're beloved. There's a a, a wedding day coming. And we read that in chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. It says this. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Look at this picture. Oh. She made herself ready, didn't she? Not sure what that is in her head there, but... uh, (laughs) She made herself ready. She didn't get out of bed and just sort of go, well, what will I wear, or what doesn't need iron, as most of us do as men. Um, She made herself ready. You know, in fact, how ready she was? She was half an hour early. I know, but keen. Um... (laughs) the only thing she's ever been early for, I have to say. Um, but she was early, and her and her dad went for a lovely walk around Oxford Island and because we were getting married in Shankill-Lurgan. And it was lovely. But look, she made herself ready, and she put so much effort in. And Jesus wants a bride that's ready, is what I'm trying to say. Jesus doesn't want a bride that's not ready. He doesn't want a bride to show up in their, in their, in their rags and, and filthy and dirty. Any bridegroom, when he shows up, the, the bride and bridegroom show their love by how much preparation they have put in to getting ready. And Jesus is saying to his church, I am the bridegroom, you're my bride, and I'm coming for you. You're my beloved, you're my people, I gave my life for you, I'm passionate about you, I see what's happening to you, I love you so much, and I am with you. You're being persecuted, you're going through hell, and I am with you, and I love you so much. I'm your bridegroom, and you're my bride. But anyone who's been married for more than two weeks knows that it's all not sweetness and light. That it's all not cuddles and hearts and roses and everything else. Maybe that's just us. But, uh, you know, there's, there's problems. Marriage takes work. There's stuff that happens that you need to deal with. There's challenges you need to confront. 
at times you need to show what James Dobson calls touch, tough love. You need to say, look, I, I don't like this and I can't have this anymore. And, 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 and in the same way, Jesus doesn't patronize his bride. He doesn't pander to us. He doesn't ignore the problems and brush them under the carpet. He doesn't say everything's okay when it's not okay. He tells us the truth. He challenges the bride. He tells us where we're doing well and where we're not doing so well. And I love that. I don't want a Jesus who just tells me what I want to know. Because we have a culture that's trying to make Jesus into their own image and just tell us what we want to know. Jesus tells us what he loves about us, but he also tells us, look, you need to change this. You need to sort this out because I can't tolerate this anymore. I want a bride who's holy and spotless and pure and devoted. And I expect more. And last week, Harold, Bishop Harold, went through the structure of, and uh, he started, you know, by telling us that uh, there's an introduction and then there's a word of encouragement. And most of them, apart from one or two, there's a word of encouragement. Jesus says, this is what I love about you. This is what he, you're doing well. And that's a really good thing for us too, to remember. That in the churches we have to challenge each other sometimes. Sometimes we have to call things out. It's always better to start with encouragement. Sometimes when somebody annoys you, it's very easy to focus on the thing that annoys you. I find, and I'm trying to do this more and more, because I'm quite reactive, okay? When, when something annoys me, I get emotional and I want to confront it. And I st- I've tried to step back and go, okay, that's annoyed me, but what do I like about this person? What's good about them? When I went to Shankill Parish in Lurgan to be Morris Elliott's curate, Morris was brilliant in one sense, but he'd obviously learnt this thing, that before you criticise anyone, you give them two positive things. And I picked up on this fairly quickly. So he would say, Craig, you know, I really liked your sermon last week and I really liked uh, that you visited this week. And with the second encouragement, I ducked because I knew there was a punch coming, you know, because you kinda, his thing was two positives, one negative. And it was like sometimes he, again, he had to really stretch it. I really liked how you wore your collar this morning. Um, but, but, but that's actually a really good way. If you can focus on two positive things, for every negative thing I think that's a really good way to deal with each other in the church and once he encourages them he then sometimes challenges them because you know what in every church that Jesus writes to here and in every church there is today there's a mixture of good and bad in every church there's a mixture of good and bad there's people here who love Jesus passionately and people here who don't love Jesus there's people here who are serving him wholeheartedly and people who are lazy there's people here who once loved him passionately who have now let that slide there's people here who are pure and people who are really struggling with impurity there's people here who give generously and people who are stingy and won't give if you prize it out of their fingers there you know and, and that's the church that's the church it was the church then and it's the church now because the church is made up of people and people are messed up and people are broken and people are human and we all have our little flaws and idiosyncrasies and weirdness and we all have things that we're really good at and things that we're weak at i'm becoming more and more aware of what i'm good at and what god has called me to do and there's so many things i'm terrible at i i honestly i this is what i do and I'm, I'm okay at this. 80% of the other stuff I'm pretty average or rubbish at. And so I need to focus on what God has gifted me to do and find people around me who are good at the things 
that I don't do well. And I have to admit, I can't do it because in the past I've tried to do everything and I've burnt myself out. And so we need to look at our lives and go, you know what, there's things we good, are good at, honestly, and not try to be false, hum, falsely humble about that and actually just go, you know what, I can do that. And there's other things that we're really not good at and go, you know what, I'm not great at that, I'm going to try to improve a bit. But really, I'm probably never going to be great at it. And, but you know what, there's other things I'm really good at. Uh, and, 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 and somebody said, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect church. And if you find it, don't join it because you're going to ruin it. And, and, and I, I think we need to remember that because we live in a culture of church hopping. People, it used to be, didn't it, that you grew up in your parish church or your local church because it was the only church there was. If you were brought up Presbyterian, you went to the church that your parents went to. Church of Ireland, you went to the church your parents went to. This, these days you don't have to do that. And I'm glad in one sense. But the problem is that, and with that is that we just jump around every six months from church to church. We go to a church, we love it for six months, but then we find something we don't like. Don't like the music there. Going somewhere else, the preaching's better. Don't like the people there. Go somewhere else, the worship's better. Don't like the worship there. And every six months people hop about from church to church to church and because they're trying to find the perfect church. And the reality is that you can't do that. I have friends, and I have had friends in the past, guys who were looking for the perfect woman. I have to say there is no perfect woman, apart from obviously all the women in this church. Um, <laughs> no, but there's not. And I, but these guys, I have friends who live in this fantasy world and they're addicted to falling in love. They're addicted to the challenge and they chase a girl and as soon as they get her, they're over the moon, they're totally in love, she's the best thing ever and three months later they find one flaw about her and it's over. And they're serial daters and they're serial daters in the church today. And they move from church to church to church every six months and they never get planted anywhere. And the thing is that with anything, if it's not planted, it can't grow. And so I always say this, I don't care what church you go to as long as it's a Bible-teaching church. I don't care where you go, but get planted somewhere. I don't care if, you make, if you're visiting with us today, if you're looking around churches, I hope you stay here. If you don't stay here, go somewhere else and get planted. But if, you, if this is the fifth church that you've been semi-committed to in the last two years, probably this isn't going to be a place for you because we want people here who are going to be part of a community. It's not just a show you attend on a Sunday. It's a community and a body that you're part of and you commit to and you give and you serve and you receive and you encourage and you be encouraged. And so we don't want church hoppers in this church. If you're a church hopper, please, we welcome you to go somewhere else next week. Um, I do because honestly, I, I just don't want to build a church of church hoppers. We're not trying to put on the best show in town. We're not. We're not slick, in case you hadn't gathered. Nor do we want to be slick. We want to do everything professionally and honorably to the glory of God the very best we can. But we're never going to be slick. Because this world doesn't like slick. Hollywood's slick. And people are getting sick of slick. We want to be authentic. We want to be real. We want to bring our best. We want to bring excellence to the glory of God. But we are not trying to be the best show in town because there will always be a better show. I always say this, that if you win the world with entertainment, you've got to keep them with entertainment and the world will always entertain better than the church. But if you win them with the word of God and the spirit of God and the presence of God, the world has no substitute for that. And that's our goal. It's not to entertain the world. It is to bring the presence and power of God into people's lives, see them transformed, and, 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 and there is no substitute for that. 
And so that's our mission as a church, is not to be the best show in town, but to build a community where the presence of God dwells and where lives are transformed. And Jesus says this in every letter pretty much. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. He knows his church. He knows your deeds. And that can be frightening. And it's also encouraging. I know my deeds some days are better than others. I know my thoughts some days are better than others. I know my attitudes some days are better than others. Jesus knows us intimately and he loves us passionately. And the church was his idea. And he loves us in spite of all our imperfections. Now, I'm not going to go through every church individually, all seven. But what I am going to do is I'm going to draw out some of the main themes. I'm going to focus on a few. Oh, Lord, is that the time? I'm going to go very quickly through a few and, uh, and see what God wants to speak to us here in hope. The first one is this. All had no heart, the danger of the second generation. I'd never noticed this before, but the first church that Jesus writes to is the church in Ephesus, which if you've been around church for a while, you will have heard of it because Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. It was a strong church. Ephesus was a big city. It was, I think, the fourth biggest city. It had about a quarter of a million people. It was a port city. It was wealthy, um, but it was a very pagan city. It was a city that there was a huge temple to the god Artemis or Diana. And remember in Acts 19, or 18, Acts 19, I think it is, Paul almost starts a riot there because he's preaching Christ. So many people are coming to Christ that people aren't buying the little trinkets and the little statues. And, and so people are going out of business. And so they stir up a riot against Paul. And, and that's how big this church was growing. Once you start to affect the local economy because people are turning to Christ, you know you're making a difference in a culture. And so they, they, got, they, they basically chased Paul out of town. He put a young guy called Timothy in charge of this church. You've probably heard of the letter First Timothy, Second Timothy. Timothy's in charge of this church. So this is a strong, big, vibrant, growing church in the 60s AD when Paul preached, or mid-60s, Paul preached and wrote the letter to the Ephesians, okay? This is now 95 AD, which I know I went to Clowna, but that's 30 years later. Okay, I can figure that out. Um, 30 years later, he's writing to this church that was so strong 30 years before. This is now a second generation church is what I'm trying to say. Do you understand that? In the 60s, first generation, new Christians. 90s, second generation, sons and daughters of first Christians. And look at what he writes to them. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles or not have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That sounds good. This is a hard-working church. I know your hard work, your perseverance. We all, this is a hard-working church. Some of you were here yesterday morning clearing, cleaning. You, we, this is such a hard-working church, and I am so thankful for a church that works hard. They, 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 they are also a very theologically sound church. They can spot a heretic a mile away, like an African-American at a white supremacist rally. They, you know, he, they just... They stand out, okay? They, they, you can spot a heretic a mile away. They're very sound theologically. They could quote their Bible inside out, back to front. They are theologically sound. This sounds like a perfect church that you want to be part of. And yet, Jesus says this, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you have at first. 
Jesus says, you're doing all the right things. You're working hard. You're preaching the word. But here's the thing. You don't have the heart. Your passion for me is gone. You're doing things out of duty and obligation and habit. You're going through the motions week after week. And there's no passion behind it. And as I think about my church experience, and this isn't being critical of anyone, but I remember going into churches as a child and watching people chant and sing and go through the motions week after week, and they were singing worship to Jesus, but their faces just hadn't caught up with it yet. They were going through religious ritual and tradition that possibly at one stage meant something to somebody, but now it was dead religion. But they were still doing it because that's what you do. And that's what is happening here. And some of you have come from mainline nominal Protestant churches. Some of you have come from uh, nominal Catholic churches. And you've encountered Jesus. And you've been on fire for Jesus. And you're just so wanting to be in church. And you love Jesus. Uh, and, And the thing is this, that's great. Because the first generation or the generation on fire, maybe you're the first generation in your family to come to Christ. But here's the thing I've found sometimes, and not always but sometimes, that the first generation come to Christ, they get married, they have kids, and what do all Christian parents want to do? They want their kids to grow up in the church, and that's absolutely right. I'm so thankful that we've got such a great kids' ministry. And the the kids come through church, they learn the songs, they hear the stories about Jesus, and we just want to get them through those awkward teenage years so they don't spend every week in Bambridge at the weekend, and we want to get them through so they don't become drug dealers or go to jail. And once they reach 18, we're like, yes, they're still in church, we've kept them still in church, they haven't joined any drug gang, hallelujah. But the thing is, have they really encountered Jesus? Or have they just adopted your faith? And I think it's great that they're still in church. But the danger is, and I've seen this again and again, that they have your beliefs, they've just never had your experience. They have adopted the routine and the behavior of church, but they've never had a real encounter with the Spirit of God in their lives. I saw it in Dublin particularly, I can think of certain, because we had a lot of first-generation Families there who, through the Catholic charismatic movement, came to Christ in the 60s and 70s. They were on fire. They had kids who they brought to church. And to be honest with you, the parents were almost always more on fire than the kids, pretty much. The kids would leave church in a heartbeat. They'd be up leading worship one week, and next thing for four weeks you wouldn't see them. But the parents were there every week. Because the parents had had their own encounter, but the kids had never had a living, risen encounter with Jesus. And yes, it's so wonderful. I want our little boy to be in church every week. I want him to grow up knowing Jesus. But I want him to have his own experience of Jesus. And that will look different from... I want to say this to your, as, as, if your parents here. Let your children's experience and faith look different than yours. It doesn't have to look like yours. Just like people come in here and they go, that doesn't look like church. Because their mindset is church when the steeple. Let your kids... Find their own faith. Yes, encourage them, speak to them, pray with them, love them. But they've got to, at some stage, have their own encounter with Jesus. Otherwise, they hate 18, go to university and go wild. And I've seen that again and again. They've got to, you know, I, I, I buy second-hand clothes sometimes. I have a second-hand car out there. I've bought second-hand furniture. I like second-hand stuff. I don't want a second-hand faith. 
You've got to have a first-hand faith. You've got to experience Jesus for yourself. And how do we do that? How do we remedy that? I'm going to skip a slide or two and go to... Yeah, what's the answer? Verse 5. Jesus says this, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. He's saying you've forsaken your first love. So what's the remedy of that? Go back to the start. What's the start? The very elemental things. Bow your knee before Jesus. Have an encounter with him. Praying, worshipping. It says go do the things you did at first. That's not saying go back and do the things you did when you first started coming to church. That's saying go back to the foundations of the faith and make sure you get those things right. Go back to the elemental things of a relationship with Jesus. Realize what you're missing. Consider how far you've fallen. You're settling for living here when God is here for you. There is so much more. Don't settle for less. Don't settle for a half-hearted, bland Christian life. Seek me. Get in my word. Find your own relationship with me. Repent and do the things you did at first. And some of us today are maybe living on a second-hand faith. And if you have Christian parents, be thankful for them. I'm so thankful I was sent to Sunday school as a kid, even though I think I got thrown out once. Um, Who gets thrown out of Sunday school? Thanks, Kenny Mulholland. Um, But uh, I'm so glad. Because through that I ended up in youth fellowship, through that I ended up at Summer Madness, and through that I became a Christian. I'm so thankful that I was brought up going to those things. But your children have got to find their own faith. You can encourage them, but you can't control them. Let them find their own faith. And actually, the ones who were brought up with that, once they got the freedom, some, I have a lot of friends who they went a bit wild for a while, and some of your parents maybe know who that's happening in your kids that they're not following Christ right now. But I want to say some of the ones who went wild, most of them are now back following Christ with much more passion than they had 15 years ago because they find their own faith now. And they're bringing their own kids up to love Jesus. So if your kids are maybe in that place right now where it seems like they're prodigals, I want to encourage you this morning, if they have been brought up with the truth in their hearts, they will come back. I'm going to skip number two because I'm very conscious of time and I want to go to number three. Outside, inside. The enemy will try everything to destroy the church. We've already said Jesus loves his church. We're his bride, we're his body. He loves us. The church is the only organization, institution, whatever you want to put it, that Jesus founded, okay? He founded no other organization, no other group except the church. He said, I will build my church. This is his church. He is the senior pastor of this church. I am an under-shepherd as the leader here. Okay? Jesus loves his church, his bride, his body. He reaches the world through his church. We advance his kingdom. We carry his light to illuminate the darkness. We preach the gospel of his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, if Jesus loves the church, it should come as absolutely no surprise that Satan absolutely hates the church. Satan hates the church of Jesus Christ. We'll see that later when we get to Revelation chapter 12. But basically, here's what we see. And you see this in the real world as well. I, I love some of those mafia things on Netflix. 
you know, about the uh, Pablo Escobar. I will kill you. Yeah, I love all those peckies. I'm always, if I'm cooking, I'm always watching some of those things, you know, about the, the drug lords. And so I don't know why. I just, I'm not going to become a drug dealer, although it would be a good cover um, for what I do. Let's be honest. Who's going to suspect it? Um, but I'm not, if the APS and I are listening. But what do they do? If they can't get to the one they want to kill, what do they do? They get those closest to them, don't they? Family closest relatives, they take them out because they know if they can get them, that will affect the one that they're trying to get. And Satan does exactly the same. In Revelation, we'll see again and again, it says the time is short and his time is short. Satan knows his time is short. He can't get to God directly because he has no power there whatsoever. So his next best thing is to get to God's children, the church, the bride, the body. Satan has been defeated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. One day he will be destroyed, but in the meantime he has one goal, and that is to stop people getting to heaven and to populate hell. And we are his church, and his attack is against us. We need to remember this, because we forget this so often, that we are not a cruise ship, we are a battleship. The church is not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. It's not a place where you come back and just sit and relax. You are in a battle. The Bible talks about the armor of God. It talks about fighting the good fight. You know what the best thing about a good fight is? You know you've won. That's a good fight. A bad fight is Conor McGregor last night didn't win. That's a bad fight. This is a good fight because the victory has already been won. But Jesus has won the victory, but Satan is yet not destroyed. And in these last days, and I mean the last days are the time between Jesus' first coming and second coming, but I do believe we're living in the last days of the last days. I think anybody who has any sense from reading the papers and watching what's going on in the world will be able to say we're living in the last days of the last days. He's not going down without a fight and therefore he will do everything he can to attack, discourage, weaken, accuse, divide and paralyze the church. And he fights dirty. If you've been watching US politics this week, it gets pretty dirty, doesn't it? Like they really, they get dirty. If you can't stop them, we'll just drag up more dirt about them. And we'll drag up lies about them. And that's what Satan does. He fights dirty. And some of his tactics are more obvious and blatant than others. Here's the obvious ones. Persecution. Persecution from the outside is obvious. You know it's the enemy. You know Satan is behind that. If we were to be all arrested and thrown into jail today just for worshipping Jesus, you would know that there's an enemy behind that, that Satan is at work. And, the, and, the, and that's what it talks about in, in 2.10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. Do you see that? Not the authorities. The devil. Now, the devil, a guy had a pitchfork or whatever he wanted. The devil, he didn't literally come along through them into prison. But he was working through the human authorities to put them in prison and to test you. Because you know what persecution does? It tests, tests your faith. It tests your faith. Persecution is actually good for the church. We don't welcome it. We don't want to be persecuted. But it is good for the church because it sorts out those who are half-heartedly just going along the church and those who are real Christians. That's why the church in, Christian, uh, the church in China now has over 100 million people because of persecution. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. That's, a, 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 again, a number that we'll not get into. But it's easy to recognize persecution as an attack from the enemy. But the enemy's attacks are much more subtle than that very often. 
And he will attack the church, not from the outside, most often through persecution, but from the inside. Because that's much more difficult to recognize. And I want to finish with this today. The three ways he attacks the church from the inside. Because I feel like at this stage in our journey, these are the things we need to be aware of, church. I really do. I believe that at this stage in our journey, this is what I, just as I studied this week, I really felt as long as I get this bit done, I'll have preached what God wants me to preach this Sunday. The three main ways that John sees that Satan attacks a church are this. False teaching. False teaching. He says this. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, also you have those who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Repent therefore. Now nobody really knows what this false teaching was of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. They don't really know what it entailed. But here's what they do know, the fruit of it. It led to wrong living. It led to unholy, ungodly, sinful living. They weren't reflecting lives of God's holiness and purity. They were blending in and they weren't impacting the culture around them. Because here's the thing. Wrong teaching leads to wrong living. I know that sounds really simple, but it's true. Wrong teaching leads to wrong living. I've always said this, that if you preach the Bible faithfully from the front week after week, you sort out 90% of the pastoral problems in your church. Because right thinking or right preaching leads to right thinking leads to right living. Wrong teaching leads to wrong living. With wrong teaching, here's what happens. You become legalistic or you become casual about sin or you become just plain weird. Faithful biblical preaching week after week leads to right living because the truth sets us free. The word brings life. The word is a double-edged sword. The word is the sword of the spirit and it brings transformation and we need to be a people who stick to the Bible. I hear so much rubbish out there at the minute, folks. Being preached on Christian television, some of it, although that's not all of it, some of it by new progressive preachers who have some new innovative teaching. And I want to say to you that if it's not in this book, it is wrong, it is heretical. We need to start calling out some of this stuff. The early church weren't afraid to call out heretics. Jesus wasn't afraid to call out heretics. Notice it says here, you tolerate the teachings. Are you... Don't be, yeah, you tolerate, or you hold to the teachings. So later on, about tolerating. Sometimes we tolerate things that Jesus doesn't. Sometimes we're more, this is the age of tolerance, isn't it? Sometimes we're more tolerant than Jesus is. We're nicer than Jesus is sometimes. And there are things that Jesus doesn't tolerate in his church and it's false teaching. And we've had preachers over the last number of years, and I dealt a bit with it when my talk on hell the other week, which is online, I think, where they've said there's no hell. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. All of this stuff, can I tell you that is false preaching from the pit of hell? Unless you believe that this book is the authoritative word of God, you will go into error and heresy. So we're a church that will stick to that book. We are a church that will preach the Bible week in, week out. There are so many so-called Christian leaders today who have got led astray by new and innovative and postmodern teaching or by teaching that's exciting and dramatic, but it's used by Satan to destroy churches. So that's the first one, false teaching. The second one is this, self-appointed leadership. 
Look at 2.20 to 21. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Here we have her, Jezebel. That famous, or should I say infamous woman, who is notorious for leading men astray into sexual immorality. We find her in the Old Testament, those of you who know the Bible. She married the king of Israel, King Ahab. And she, as she uh, became more ingrained in the culture of Israel, what she did was she brought her pagan gods and she turned people away from Yahweh, the true God, to worship gods like Baal and Asherah. And because Ahab was such a weak, spineless, hand-packed husband, he just said, yes, Jezebel, whatever you say, Jezebel. And she gathered people around her who pulled the nation away from God. I don't think in Revelation 2, I don't think there was literally a woman called Jezebel in the church, by the way. I mean, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? You know, uh, mom, dad, I'm going out on a date tonight. Here's my girl, Jezebel. I don't think that's really how it happened. A little bit obvious. I think Jezebel was more a, a type of person. I've heard people talk about certain people and they'll say this. She's got a Jezebel spirit. You ever heard that? She's got a spirit of Jezebel. Or have read books how we need to guard against those Jezebel women who try to lure us away from God. Actually, I think that's too simple and naive a picture of what Jezebel really represents. I think Jezebel is more than a type of woman who seduces men and leads them astray. And this is important. Otherwise, we'll spend our time constantly looking at the wrong people and thinking they're Jezebel. It's a type of person, male or female, who seeks power prominence and authority but it hasn't been given to them by God they are self-appointed rather than God-appointed notice what it says here about Jezebel you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet you see that it doesn't say the church calls her a prophet she says I'm a prophet self-appointed leadership I always say, if you have to go around telling everybody that you're the leader, you're probably not. Isn't that true? If you have to go around telling everybody you're the boss, you're probably not. If you men have to go around saying, I'm the head of my home, you're probably not. If you're self-appointed and not God-appointed, Jezebel will never come under authority or submit spiritually to those whom God has appointed because she has, or she or he has a proud, hard heart. Look at 2.21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. Why? Because Jezebels, whether they're male or female, have this, I am always right. I am always right. Jezebels, in their attempt to derive authority, they tend to do one of two things. They attach themselves to the spiritual leader so that the spiritual leader becomes dependent on them. The spiritual leader doesn't make any decisions without contacting them. They always have words for the spiritual leader, constantly. Every week I have a new word for you, I have a new word for you. God's told me, and they start to control the spiritual leader. That's one way. The other way is this. They begin to subtly undermine the spiritual leader. Just little things in the background. Little things of gossip. Little seeds of doubt. Over time they begin to undermine the spiritual leader, the appointed leader. And then they do this. They put themselves forward as a replacement. 
for that spiritual leader. The original Jezebel in the Old Testament had no power at all over the people of Israel, but she derived power from Ahab because he was the king. And in the end, she had more power and authority than her husband had, only because he had surrendered his control. And control is the key word here. Jezebels want control. Male or female, and I have encountered both. In fact, the strongest Jezebel spirit I have encountered in the church was from a male who wanted control and who sought subtly to undermine my ministry behind my back. And when confronted, went mad because they can't handle confrontation. And they're always right. And to this day, this person thinks they're right. So let's not just start looking. If a woman comes in in a short skirt and lipstick, let's not assume she's a Jezebel, okay? She might just be wearing a short skirt and lipstick. <laughs> Lengthen the skirt below the knees, but, but let's not just assume that that woman's a Jezebel. Jezebels, male or female, draw people to themselves, not to Jesus. That's key. This is important here, because you'll hear this term a lot. They want people dependent on them. They appear very spiritual. I'm always wary of people who are too hyper-spiritual. Hyper-spiritual people make me really uncomfortable because I'm not that hyper-spiritual. And I do. if you can't have a normal conversation with me without it being hyper-spiritual, I honestly find that really uncomfortable. Yes, there are times for spiritual conversations. Of course there are. But if you can't have a regular conversation, just there's something wrong there. They appear very gifted, normally in something like the prophetic. And I'm not saying all people gifted the prophetic are Jezebels. We love the prophetic. Tonight at the prayer gathering, we're going to press into the prophetic. I'm looking forward to it so much. They like to bless people or to be seen to bless people. They tell you everything you want to hear. They use flattery and false humility. But underneath it all, they're manipulative, controlling, and they only have one mission, and that is to get their way no matter the cost. And they will leave a trail of destruction in their path if they are not dealt with firmly. And I've seen it again and again. I've seen it destroy churches, where self-appointed leaders rise up and undermine the leader who's there, or the leader gets too dependent on somebody in the church and they then take control of the church. And if they're challenged, they leave and they go down the street and try to take people with them. It has to be dealt with firmly. You cannot tolerate the Jezebel in the church. And if I see that, I haven't seen that here. If I do see it, it will be challenged, and if it's not repented of, you will be invited to leave. And I don't say that arrogantly, but I've just seen too many, particularly churches like this, that God is at work in. That we draw a lot of gifted people to. I want your gifts. I want your I want you to use you. I'm not please don't shrink back from using your gifts. I just I'm very conscious that churches like this do tend to draw people sometimes who have always aspired to be here and have never done it. This is not the end goal, folks. Jesus washing people's feet is the end goal. This the platform is not the end goal. I want to say that to you. Please never think this is it. If you can't wash feet, if you can't come under authority, Jesus will never give you authority. 
That's why I loved having Harold here last week. He is my authority under Jesus. He is my spiritual authority. He can withdraw my license from me at any time. And I submit to his leadership and I honor him. And he submits to God and he submits to the wider Anglican church. If you can't be under authority, God will never give you authority. But please never have self-appointed authority. And look what it says to, to the one who is victorious. In other words, sometimes you have to fight this person and does my will to the end. I will give authority. Jesus is the only one who gives spiritual authority. Jezebel's authority is self-appointed, but when God gives you authority, you don't have to have to grasp for it. You don't have to try and put yourself forward for it. You don't have to try and position yourself for it. God gives you authority and you steward it with humility. And look at later on in 3.7, Jesus says this. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. In other words, don't try to kick down doors that God isn't opening for you. And don't try to force what God hasn't endorsed. And the third thing, so the first thing is false teaching. The second thing is self-appointed leadership. And really quickly, the third thing is lukewarmness. And I'm not going to spend time on this at all. But lukewarmness in the church. We're a passionate church. And I love that. And this is one of those passages. Out of all the seven churches, the church in Laodicea is the best known one. Because of the version 320. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me and welcomes me, and I will come and sit with them. And it's a lovely church we use for non-Christians, but we need to remember that Jesus is speaking to the church here. And if he's standing at the door and knocking, where is he? He's outside, and he's trying to get in. He's saying, I'm outside. You're calling me your bride. You're calling me the bride and body of Christ, and you've left me outside, and I'm knocking, and I want to get in. And he's writing to this church in Laodicea who were a very wealthy church. They were quite an arrogant church. And he says this, you're lukewarm. Laodicea had a number of things going for them. They were very wealthy. They, they, they produced clothes. They produced this eye balm. That's why he says you're naked and blind. I love it. He tailors a message specifically for them. They had this black cloth that they made. And he says you're naked. They had this eye bomb. They were known for medicine. He says, you're blind. And the other thing was that when, in AD 61, when Laodicea burnt down, the Roman emperor said, I'll rebuild it for you. And they said, we don't need your money. We can do it ourselves. And the, it says, and you say, you have, I have everything I need. Jesus tailors his message specifically for them. And you know what the other thing in Laodicea was? It didn't have an, its own source of water. So what, what it did was, there was a hot spring five miles away. And they built these huge aqueducts over ground. And they tried to pump these, through these pipes the, the water from the hot springs five miles away into Laodicea. And the natural cold water seven miles away. And they tried to use these huge aqueducts above ground to bring in cold water. But what happened to the hot water as it travelled five miles? It cooled down. What happened to the cold water as it travelled seven miles? It heated up. So that all the water that came into Laodicea was lukewarm. Thank you. <laughs> it's lovely to have one encouraging person. And so Jesus knows everything about them. And he says, I'd rather you were hot or cold than lukewarm. And I, I used to think that, would, that meant I'd rather you weren't even a Christian at all than lukewarm. But do you know what he's really saying? Because what's lukewarm water? Hot water, 
You can have a bath in it. You can make a cup of coffee with it. Cold water can refresh you. Lukewarm water is good for nothing. And that's what Jesus is basically saying. You're good for nothing. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is telling his people you're good for nothing. And he says, you make me sick. I mean, this is... You make me want to puke. That's what he says to them. You make me want to throw up. Because that's what lukewarm does. Jesus says, I I don't want a lukewarm church. Because if you're cold, at least you realize you're cold and you might repent and become hot. But if you're lukewarm, you think you're fine. And we're not a lukewarm church, I pray. I really do pray. If you were to go into the prayer meeting, can I encourage you, if we can fit more in before church, you will know that we're not a lukewarm church. But many Christians I know live lukewarm lives. And they start out with great intentions. But life happens. And we become lukewarm. And I just, I feel today God wants just to, as we come to communion, to relight, I was going to say relight the fire. Relight my fire. Take that. But I do think he wants to relight the fire actually in our hearts. He wants to relight the fire in my heart. Because life happens and church happens and you become a bit cynical and a bit hard and you've seen it all and you've done it all. And, you've, and I think Jesus just wants to relight the fire. He wants to restore our first love. You know, there's nothing better than seeing a couple who have been married 40 years and they're more in love than they were 40 years ago. Isn't that right? I remember just before we were married, or just after we were married, I was at the barbers, and I was going on about just how much I loved Becky, and they went, I'll just give you 10 years, and you'll fall, you know, and you'll not be like that anymore. And, and I think we assume that, but why do you have to fall out of love, or why does your love have to decrease? Why can't it increase? Why can't you love Jesus more than you did 10 years ago? Why can't you love Jesus more than you did when you first became a Christian? And as I finish, I just want to challenge us with this. Just as we come to communion, the Bible says prepare our hearts as we come to communion. I want you to imagine today, and this isn't to be a convicting thing, because I actually think God wants to encourage us more than convict us today. I want you to imagine Jesus was writing a letter to you, personally. Dear you. Let's think about this for a wee minute. Dear Craig. This is what you're doing really well. And I want to say to some of you, I want to say to all of you, but you're doing some stuff really well. I want to encourage you because sometimes we are so much better at pointing out the places we don't do well in our own lives. Some of you are doing things really well. Jesus would say to some of you, you work really hard. And I'm so thankful for your time and your, your effort. I see how hard you work. I see your diligence. Some of you are so generous. I believe the Lord wants to thank you for your generosity. Some of you here who have businesses, I believe the Lord wants to bless your business right now because you have used what he has given you. And I believe you're going to see in the next three months significant blessing on your business. Some of you are so kind to people. Like when you see somebody in need, you just will do whatever you can to help them. The Lord says thank you for that. You know, well done isn't just for heaven, folks. Well done, good and faithful servant, is not just when we die. 
Some of us need to hear that this morning. Well done. It's hard to hear that, isn't it? You go, mm, I'm not that good. Well done. I want to look at you and say, for on behalf of the Lord, well done. Well done. But we also know that there's things in our lives that Jesus would say, look, I just, I need you to sort this out. Because I love you. And I think for most of us, there's probably something comes to mind there. I just, I need you to sort this out. I need you to deal with this. And look at what he says. I'm coming soon. I love you to death. Jesus. Jesus.